Morning, church. Happy New Year. It is good to be with each of you on this first Lord's Day of 2022. Uh, this morning we'll be turning to Judges chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one under the seat uh, in front of you. And our passage today will be found on page 203. It's page 203. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, whereas the verse numbers are the small numbers. Uh, so we'll be looking at uh, Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24, the whole chapter. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one of these pew Bibles uh, home with you. We would love to gift you with one of these so that you can study God's Word at home on your own. So I'll be reading Judges chapter 4, and if you're someone who likes to take notes in your Bible, uh, be sure to underline every reference to the Lord in this chapter. Uh, So Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pinched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim up to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. 
Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction and for the life that it gives us. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would open up our minds and that you would soften our hearts to receive this food that you have prepared for us. Allow it to convict us of sin, to shape us, to form us, and to mold us evermore into the image of Christ so that we might see him and glorify him and so that we might enjoy you through him and the work that he has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a new year has begun, and while I suspect that some of you may have made plans and celebrated the ushering in of 2022, I'd be willing to bet that many of you had a quiet night and made sure that you were all in bed at the same time you normally are. Maybe that's because you find the ball drop in Times Square to be the most uneventful thing of all time. Maybe you're exhausted after a week of Christmas celebrations. Or maybe the New Year's holiday just really isn't your thing. And maybe the holiday isn't really your thing because maybe the start of a new year does not really signify anything that is really all that new. You wake up and you go to the same job, you make the same foods and pay the same bills. The sun rises and sets each day just as it had last year. And perhaps you identify with the preacher of Ecclesiastes when he says that there's nothing new under the sun. Maybe you find the same struggles, stressors, or, or sins coming into your life and repeating themselves over and over again. Perhaps each new year really just brings you more of the same. Well, if you're tired of cycles and repetition and the same thing over and over again, then I apologize to inform you that we are studying the book of Judges. Uh, in this book, cycles, and more specifically, the cycles of Israel's sin and Rebellion are the recurring motif in this book that tracks the nation's downward spiral as it tries to figure out life in the promised land. But Israel's wickedness is not the only thing that remains the same. Over and above the nation's sin, we see that the steadfast and unchanging love of God who is faithful to his promise, even when his people revolt. We see that he is a God who delivers. And this is true in what we find in our passage today. In Judges chapter 4, we learn that God decrees, accomplishes, and completes deliverance of his people to himself through the agency of those that he raises up. And so as a result of this, we learn that we should live as those who have been delivered. And so we will observe this today in four main points. First, we will observe discipline inflicted, and that's verses 1 through 3. Second, deliverance decreed, that is verses 4 through 10. Third, deliverance accomplished, verses 12 through 16. Uh, and fourth and finally, deliverance completed, that's verses 17 through 24. So discipline inflicted, deliverance decreed, deliverance accomplished, 
and deliverance completed. Look first at discipline inflicted. So verse 1 begins with a familiar refrain. And the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. These opening three verses lay out the first few stages of Israel's repetitive cycle that we see in the book of Judges. After a period of peace, the people of Israel rebel. As a result of their rebellion, God hands them over to their enemies. So after suffering under oppression, Israel cries out to God for help and pleads for his deliverance. It's a continual pattern that Israel cannot seem to break free of. So if you were here for any of our other sermons in Judges, you may have gotten to verses 1 through 3 and said to yourself, here we go again. So if I happen to repeat anything that Dan said last week, don't blame me. Blame the Israelites for doing the same thing over and over again. Now, while we might laugh off or become annoyed with this kind of repetition, for the author of Judges, this repetition is exactly the point. God's people are a forgetful people. They are people that are prone to fall away. And these cycles of constant apostasy are recorded so that future generations of God's people might be reminded of their tendency to fall away so that they might put measures in place to keep them from forgetting. Because we see that Old Testament Israel by no means has a monopoly on this forgetfulness. This is why the author of Hebrews writes the letter that we read from this morning so that Christians might not fall away like Israel was prone to doing. And this is why he exhorts them to action such as not neglecting to gather together in Hebrews 10.25. This is why we hold our weekly meetings together where we repeat the same practices, the same liturgies, the same corporate repentance and confessional readings so that we don't forget. And this is why we're doing a series on the book of Judges so that we can see how prone to wander God's people really are. And these are but some of the measures of grace and structures that God gives his people. And he gives, this, gives them to us because without them, we would be like the Israelites in the book of Judges, doing whatever is right in our own eyes. And now another act of grace that is meant to keep God's people from turning away is discipline. Notice that as a result of Israel's return to wickedness in verse 1, God sells them into the hand of an oppressor in verse 2. But what is the purpose of this discipline? Is God being overly harsh or cruel for turning them over for 20 years? But see the result of their oppression in verse 3. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And so the sequence that we see here is that Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord hands them over to their oppressors so that they might return to the Lord. So we can say here that in Judges 4, the Lord's discipline has a goal, the restoration of his people to himself. This is what the nation was set apart for. Exodus 19 tells us that the covenant relationship that God formed with his people was so that they might be his treasured possession. And this is the aim of the discipline that God inflicts in verse 2, that he might provoke the response in verse 3, that they might once again return to him and live in a relationship with him as they were meant to. And so the real tragedy of Israel's rebellion is not simply the oppression that they face as a result. The real tragedy is that they have sinned against God and so do not enjoy the fellowship with him that they were made for. But this is also the real tragedy of our sin. Not only the consequences that sin brings, though they are tragic, but that they cause a separation between us and the one that we are created to enjoy. 
The inverse of this is true as well. We don't simply fight and struggle and mortify sin so that we can say that we are sinless or uh, present somewhat of a clean slate of rights and wrongs. Instead, we take up our cross and deny ourselves because our hope and our desire is in something that is far greater. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not call the pure in heart blessed simply because they are pure in heart. He calls the pure in heart blessed because they shall see God. So this discipline that the Lord gives his people is actually the most loving thing that he can do for them. Because in doing so, he not only sets in motion a plan to deliver them from their rebellion and their oppressors, he sets a plan in motion to deliver them to himself. So the story that we see here in Judges 4 is deliverance by God and for God. That's point one, our shortest point. Uh, Now we'll be moving on to point two, deliverance decreed. So verses 1 through 3 tells us what this story has in common with the rest of the book of Judges, Israel's apostasy, the Lord's discipline, and the people's response. But then verse 4 and following introduces what is unique about this story, how God plans to deliver Israel, and namely who he raises up for these purposes. And the people that we are introduced to are not people that we would expect to be God's chosen conquerors. In verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to the enemy leaders, Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his chief commander, Sisera, who boasts a seemingly invincible army with 900 iron chariots. And so to counter this, we'd anticipate that those God would raise up would be of similar might and strength and honor. But who do we get instead? Judges 4 names the counterparts to Jabin and Sisera as Deborah, who was a woman who would normally not have carried much status or authority in this period, and Barak, who was a reluctant commander. So as readers, we come to these figures and ask, who are Deborah and Barak, and how do they serve to carry out God's plan of deliverance? Well, as we recently noted, for a woman to lead Israel as a judge would certainly have been an unexpected turn of events during this time. And though this passage elaborates very little on Deborah's gender, we can infer from passages like Judges 19 and the book of Ruth that women would have been especially vulnerable during this period in time in Israel. And then we can also look to places like Judges 9.54 in in, uh, chapter 4, verse 9 of our own passage to see that it was greatly dishonorable for a man to be defeated or killed by a woman in battle. Now, we don't want to overstate the importance of Deborah's gender here in this story, but we also can't ignore it especially given the fact that yet uh, the role of yet another woman becomes crucial to the plot as well. So we can safely assume that, to say the least, that Deborah was a woman shows us that God plans to bring out deliverance to Israel by raising up those who are weak in the eyes of this world. And he is doing this to show that it is not because of the strength of men that Israel is saved, but by his own strength and by his own redemptive purpose. And this is evident in perhaps the most important role that Deborah plays, that of a prophetess. In her prophetic role in this story, we see that she is the agent through whom God speaks. From her mouth come the decrees of the Lord. In fact, most everything she says in this passage carries divine authority. And with this authority, she sends and summons the next figure that God raises up for his deliverance, Barak. Now, Barak is another unexpected leader for the purposes of Israel's deliverance, though for a less flattering reason than Deborah. 
Not only is he described, not described as noble or mighty, as opposed to Sisera, who commands an impressive army, but actually he appears to be even fearful or hesitant. Even after he's promised in verse 7 that the Lord will deliver Sisera into his hand, Barak's immediate response to Deborah in verse 8 is basically him saying, I will only go if you come with me. Now, some commentators make this out to be an act of cowardice on Barak's part. Uh, Others have uh, commented that by asking Deborah the prophetess to come with him, uh, Barak is essentially asking for uh, the presence of God to be with him. But either way, Barak is well in line with the list of flawed leaders in the book of Judges in the whole Bible. Like Moses, he's reluctant to follow God's command to deliver Israel from their oppressor. Like Gideon, he asks for assurance. And like Jeremiah, he hesitates against the divine call of God. He wavers, he questions, he doubts. So the Lord has raised up two individuals whom the world might not typically think of as especially fit for the job of delivering Israel. And this is important for us to recognize for a couple of reasons. First, and I'm specifically thinking of Barak here, we are meant to see that the the deliverance God is bringing through him is not the complete or final deliverance. We must remember that in terms of the grand story of the Bible, we're not merely looking for a temporary deliverance and rest for God's people, but we're also looking, looking for a final restoration of the entire created order. We are still looking for a final capital D deliverer. And Barak's imperfections tell us that this deliverer is not him. Secondly, and more importantly for our purposes today, God has called up two people who would normally be seen as weak so that we can see who the true deliverer of Israel is. Notice what Deborah says to Barak in verse 6. Has not the Lord commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will, that is the Lord will, draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, And I will, that is the Lord will, give him into your hand. And then in verse 9, it is the Lord who will sell Sisera into the hand of the woman. So it's God who commands Barak. It's God who will draw out Sisera. It is God who will give him into Barak's hand. And it is God who will deliver Israel. And choosing the weak for purposes like this is a characteristic that we see of God throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 tells us that God chose those who were unwise, not of noble birth, weak, foolish, looked down upon, and despised. Why? So that no human being can boast in the presence of God. It's so that we can see as clearly as possible who the true deliverer of his people is. It is God who decrees it, it's God who carries it out, and it is God who accomplishes it. And so verses 4 through 10 represent for us God's decree of deliverance. He has ordained it. So as a result, it cannot fail to come to pass. No matter how weak or faulty the agents that he raises up for his purposes are, he will carry it out according to his promise. So the Lord is the author of his people's deliverance, and he proves the trustworthiness of his promise in the following portion of the narrative. And so that brings us to point three deliverance accomplished. In verses 12 through 16, we see the efficacy, the efficacy of God's decree of deliverance. In verse 10, Barak obediently summons his army and goes up to Mount Tabor in preparation for the battle. 
And then in verses 12 through 13, Sisera prepares to meet him with all 900 of his chariots. But before moving on, we should set the scene and get a picture of these two armies meeting. So on one side, we have uh, presumably a bunch of foot soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun, the tribes closest to where Jabin, king of of Canaan, reigned and uh, were probably most affected by his oppression. But then on the other side, a vast army of 900 chariots and undoubtedly many more intimidating weapons and armory. And so just to give you a scale for how many chariots this is, Pharaoh pursued Israel with 600 chariots during the Exodus. Now, this is not to say that Sisera's defeat is a moment in redemptive history of the same scale as that of the Exodus, but it's simply to say that Sisera's army is not a small army. He's not just another playground bully. So you can imagine Barak standing before this seemingly unbeatable enemy. He looks out over the menacing multitude of Sisera, soldiers and horses, and you can probably imagine that 900 iron chariots probably looks a lot bigger in, in person than it did in his head. And add this to the fact that he was already hesitant in going up to the fight in the first place. Sure, he's got Deborah at his side, but the reader of this passage might begin to wonder whether Barak begins to have second thoughts creep into his mind as the battle is about to start. But whatever is going through his mind, whatever his heart rate or the adrenaline that is coursing through him, he immediately receives from Deborah exactly the word from the Lord that he needs. Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Now, perhaps many of us have read enough of the Bible or at least familiar enough with Bible lingo to miss the subtle trick that's being employed here. Deborah says that Sisera has, has been given into the hand of Barak. The defeat of the enemy general is, a, is an event that is spoken of as if it has already happened. In other words, a victory has already been granted to God's people. There's not a moment where the fate of Israel is in jeopardy because her victory has been planned in the mind of and decreed by a sovereign God. 900 iron chariots don't stand a chance against the God who created the heavens and the earth by the breath of his mouth. In this, friends, this absolute certainty of victory for God's people is the unshakable foundation of Christian hope. God decrees both the beginning and the end of his people's deliverance. And Judges 4.14 is not the only place where the Bible speaks of future victory as if it were a past event. Perhaps most famously in Romans 8, where Paul gives us the golden chain of salvation, he says that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that those he predestined, he called, that those he called, he justified, and that those he justified, he past tense glorified. Christian, the completion of your victory in Christ is so certain that the Bible speaks of it as if it has already happened. And this certainty is anchored in the loving decree of the Father. It was accomplished by the saving work of the Son on the cross, and it is carried to completion by the efficacious work of the Spirit. But what does the certainty of our deliverance mean for us and how we should live? Let's look down at Judges 4.14 again and see what Barak is called to do. Before Deborah tells him that God has already delivered Sisera into his hand, what does she tell him? Up! Go, 
It's a rallying cry to enter the fray of the battle, to strike down the enemy. Now, some of this, I realize, might strike our Western ears a bit strangely. If God has decreed victory, if there's nothing that can happen that might thwart God's plan of salvation, then should it really matter whether, Deborah, or whether Barak leads his army into battle or not? If God's going to do it, why should Barak feel so compelled to obey? Last year, I watched a pretty mind-boggling movie called Tenet. If you saw it, you either admit that you don't understand it, had no idea what was going on, or you're lying. It's full of crazy sci-fi concepts around the idea of time, such as reverse entropy, whatever that is, and time travel itself. Uh, so without giving too much away, there's a scene in the film where the two main characters find themselves enjoying uh, safety, perhaps a period of triumph and victory. But the security that they are enjoying at this time is contingent upon one of the t- characters going back in the past on a deadly mission to close up one final loose end. And so to the other character, this poses a paradox. If the two of them are standing there safe and unharmed in the present, that means that the past mission that one of them is about to embark on was a success. So he asks his friend whether there's an alternative to him going back and risking his life again. And so in response to this, the friend says, what's happened, happened which is an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world, it's not an excuse to do nothing. And so this is essentially the attitude of Deborah and Barak. Not only is the certainty of Israel's victory not an excuse to do nothing, but for Barak to lead his army into battle against Sisera is an expression of faith that God's promise will come to pass. He may not know how a bunch of foot soldiers will take down a mighty army, but he believes God's promise, so he obeys. Belief in what God has promised is expressed in obedience to God. And it's a neglect of this truth, disobedience because of unbelief, that has gotten Israel into the mess that they find themselves in at the beginning of our passage this morning. And just think what Israel was charged with before entering the promised land. Remember the covenant. Remember the Lord's deliverance. Obey the Lord's commands. Why? So that they might live long in the land and dwell securely. See Deuteronomy 11.9, 32.47, Leviticus 25.18. But what happened instead? They forgot the Lord's steadfast love. They forgot his covenants. They forgot his commands. And they be- believed that they could find better ways of living in the land. They believed they could find better sources of security, pleasure, and enjoyment. They did not believe that the God who had delivered them from slavery could also provide them with everything that they needed in the days ahead. Christian, are we not also the same way? Do we not also lack a belief that the God who delivered us from slavery will also grant us with Christ all that we need? Do we also look around us at at the world in our life and decide, I need to have this, or I need to have that? And maybe for some of us, these desires express themselves in sinful habits and resorting to unhealthy dependence upon things like food or drink or sleep or sexual gratification. Perhaps they make us irritable and bitter, impatient or unkind to those around us. But regardless, we often simply believe that Christ is not enough. And so ask yourself this honestly. If I were to lose my job, a certain relationship, or my health, 
would Christ still be enough? Perhaps on the flip side, if, if I never get that job or that promotion that I want, if I remain lonely, if I continue to battle health problems, would Christ still be enough? Of course, this is not to say that these things are bad. All of these things, when given, are gifts from God. But if we enjoy them without the, enjoying the one that they point to, without glorifying the one who gives them, then we have not received them as we were meant to. And so perhaps a challenge for, uh, for you this, this new year might be to ask yourself in your various uh, endeavors in life, how am I enjoying God in this? How am I bringing glory to God in this activity, in this hobby, in this work project, or in this leisure time? And then let this passage be a reminder that we are delivered by God to God for the glory of God. And to live by faith in this promise is to live a life of obedience to him, knowing that he is our chief good. So like Barak, who responds in verse 14 by going into battle against the enemy, we also daily go into battle against sin, temptation, and unbelief. And we do this because we know that God has granted us victory in Christ. We do this because, verse 14, the Lord goes out before us. Christian, if God is for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? And so now the Lord's victory over Sister's army is so swift that very little attention and detail is given to it. Only two verses are dedicated to describing the battle. We're first told in verse 15 that the Lord routes Sisera's army by the edge of the sword. And now some translations indicate that the Lord caused them to panic or to be thrown into confusion. And this leads some commentators to speculate about the conditions of the area surrounding the Kaishan River being detrimental to the chariots, whether by flooding or marshiness or something of that kind. But the point of the matter here is that in verses 15 and 16, that is that mere swordsmen defeated this entire mighty army of chariots purely as a result of divine intervention. God decreed deliverance. God accomplished deliverance. And notice finally, God completes deliverance. So if you underlined references to the Lord when we first read our passage at the beginning of our time, you may have noticed that these references to the Lord suddenly disappear in verses 17 through 22. The character with the most action and agency suddenly fades into the background here as the story slows down and centers on Jael's killing of Sisera. But we shouldn't take this sudden sudden absence of God to believe that he has ceased working and turned the reins over to someone else. Actually, the opposite is true. Because Deborah declares back in verse 9 that God will hand Sisera over to a woman, we know that verses 17 through 22 is rooted in God's decree. And so Jael then acts as uh, the agent that God has appointed for the completion of the deliverance that he's promised. So the story slows down here, the gory details and all, in part to relish in the humiliating details of the enemy's defeat. So as we touched on earlier and as is seen later in the book of Judges, to be killed by a woman during this period uh, in time is a very undignified way to go out. And so we actually see a kind of gloating here. And then later in chapter 5, verses 28 through 30, not only over the securing of Israel's victory, but over the embarrassing way that the enemy meets his end. 
Now, I know that I'm talking to a room full of Eagles fans here, so you all know that as nice as it was to beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl a few years ago, watching Tom Brady drop an easy pass on a crucial trick play really made the victory that much sweeter, didn't it? I see lots of head nods. And so the the story slows down and gives us these very specific details. But what are these details? Who is this woman jail? So now perhaps as you looked at our outline for today or as we read the text earlier, you may have been taken off guard by verse 11 uh, seemingly coming out of nowhere. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law. He lived near the great tree in Za'aninim, near Kedesh. Now, this is a verse that literally makes no sense until you get to verse 17. Heber the Kenite has no relevance to the story of Deborah and Barak when he is introduced in verse 11, but it is a subtle indication that he and his family just might play an important role later in this narrative. And we see the information that is introduced in verse 11 picked up here in verse 17. And of course, the person whose introduction is prepared is Jael, Heber's wife. Now, we see that Heber, originally part of a clan who are descendants of Moses' father-in-law, has not only separated from them, but has actually joined sides with Israel's enemy. Verse 17 says, he has made peace with Jabin, king of Canaan. Literally, he has made shalom with him. And this charged covenantal language suggests that uh, this treaty is not some uh, mere non-aggression pact. Heber the Kenite is not playing Switzerland in this struggle, but actually appears to be an active supporter of the Canaanite regime over Israel. And so this would explain why Sisera is so confident when he seeks refuge from his wife, Jael. Now, whatever our knowledge about Heber's change in loyalties, we don't don't know that much about why Jael acts with uh, so much loyalty to Israel. It's possible her husband was impressed with Sisera's powerful army and joined his side against Jael's will so that he could remain safe from harm. It's also possible that Jael is sort of like a Rahab figure living in enemy territory but seeking to join the side of the Lord. It's also possible that she received word about Barak's victory and so strategically chose to switch sides again. The text doesn't make this clear, but either way, we can be confident that God uses her to secure victory for his people. Now, we must also confront Jael's violent and treacherous actions. And in this ancient Near Eastern setting, hospitality was a very important virtue. And so her act of posing like one who's going above and beyond in her hospitality only to lull him to sleep so she can kill him would be considered very poor form, to say the very least. She makes him comfortable. She treats him like royalty, helps him feel secure, all, that she's, all so that she can move in for the strike. And so even though Judges 4 and then later in chapter 5 celebrates Israel's victory through jail, we shouldn't take this as an endorsement of treachery any more than we should take Rahab's lying to save the spies to be an endorsement of lying. But we should note, however, the, the catharsis that Sisera's death brings. The man who cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years not only meets his end, but he meets a very clearly undignified end. And the news of his death is undeniably good news for the nation of Israel. But we should take note of an even deeper truth that this death of Sisera reminds us of. If you have a Bible, flip over a page to Judges 5.26. 
But uh, before we reread this text, we should remember the basic principle that from, uh, from Genesis 3 up until the introduction of Christ, God's people are looking for a very particular deliverer. And this search is based on the passage that we read uh, back on, Chris, on Christmas Eve. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, reversing the effects of the fall. And so in the book of Judges, even though Israel has entered the promised land, its failure to drive out other nations, its capitulation to, these, uh, to the ways of these nations, and their experience of, of oppression under many of these other rulers, tells us that God's people are still looking for this promised deliverer who will ultimately crush the head of the enemy. So with that in mind, let's read Judges 5.26, which we find towards the end of the Song of Deborah, which praises God for his faithful deliverance. The verse read, reads, She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. In this verse, Deborah rejoices over the fact that Jael has crushed the head of the enemy. And as readers, though we know that Jael is not the true promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, we do see a hint that not only is God faithful to deliver Israel from this one particular foe, we see the smallest of reminders of God's promise that just as the fall of mankind came through a woman, so shall the reversal of this fall come through a woman. So also of interest is the fact that in uh, chapter 5, verse 24, Deborah calls Jael the most blessed of women a phrase that we don't see again until Luke 1.42 when Elizabeth bestows this very title upon Mary. And so the point of this is, yes, God remains faithful to his people by delivering them from the hand of Sisera, even in spite of their rebellion. And yes, this deliverance is an act that is rooted in the sovereign decree of God and is accomplished and completed by God through the agents that he raises up for the task. But this act of deliverance, deliverance here in Judges 4, ultimately points us to a much greater act of deliverance. It's a deliverance from a much greater foe, a far greater oppression. It's deliverance from the power of sin, of the very state of being in rebellion and enmity against God, of being a child under his wrath, as Ephesians, put, as Ephesians puts it, of being deserving of eternal condemnation in hell. And it is a deliverance by a much greater judge, a far better prophet, priest, and king. It's a deliverance by the Son of God himself who took on our likeness for our salvation. But this deliverance is accomplished in a very different way than in Judges 4. The head of the enemy is not crushed by cunning and treachery. Instead, our enemy's head is, is crushed by the driving of the is, excuse me, our enemy's head is not crushed by the driving of a tent peg into his head, but by the driving of the nails into the hands of Jesus Christ. So it's here on the cross that the sinless Son of God tasted death on our behalf. He bore the penalty for our sins on that cross so that those who put their trust in him might be delivered from sin and to God. And he was raised for our justification. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And he has sent us his spirit who sanctifies us and preserves us so that we who have been delivered might one day taste the perfect fruits of that deliverance. 
And so if you're here and if you're not a Christian, chances are that you may find yourself enticed by everything that the world has to offer. Perhaps the call to be a disciple of Christ, to die to yourself and follow him, may feel to you like choosing the side of a bunch of foot soldiers over the side of 900 mighty chariots. It's true, the world may offer you that kind of security. It may offer you the kind of power, prestige, and honor that following Christ might mean forfeiting. It may offer a way of life that you don't wish to abandon. But listen carefully, none of these things are what we have been created for. We have been made to enjoy fellowship with the triune God who created the heavens and the earth for eternity and all the blessings that he bestows upon us. And there is no security and there is no pleasure like that with God and Christ. So come and put your faith in him today. If you have any questions about this or would like to learn more about Jesus Christ, or like to learn how to read the Bible, please come and speak uh, with me or one of our elders or any one of our members today because we'd love to speak with you. We'd love to share more about Jesus Christ with you. But if you're here and you are a Christian, chances are today you find yourself repeating the same kind of cycle that Israel found itself in. And if that's you today, first realize that if you are in Christ, know that your deliverance is certain. There's nothing that you can do to sin yourself outside the grace of God. However, know that your deliverance is not simply from your former way of life. Your deliverance is to God. You have been raised with Christ in order that we might walk in newness of life, that we might experience fellowship of God in Christ. So let this truth be a reminder to you of what and who you were delivered for. So whether you find yourself returning to the same sins or whether you find yourself constantly forgetting the one who made you and delivered you, look to Christ. If you're prone to forget, and that's each and every one of us here this morning, be sure that you are consistently in the Word. At the beginning of a new year is a great opportunity to begin a new Bible reading plan or to form a new habit of reading God's Word. If you struggle to read the Bible or would like to get more out of it, Uh, please feel free to approach me or one of our elders or members about finding someone to meet with you and read the Bible with you. Uh, Reading God's Word with others in community is a crucial way to grow as a Christian. Finally, if you're prone to forget, don't forsake the gathering and the fellowship of the local church. Let the lives of other believers, the songs that we sing, the prayers we pray, and our confessions and our reading of the Word together minister to your soul. And then in between Sundays, incorporate many of these rhythms into your daily life. Rhythm and consistency, even if they are small things at first, are an important way that we fight against the forgetfulness that we are prone to fall into. But ultimately, we strive for these things because God is our deliverer. And so we must live like those who have been delivered. We are a people for his own possession, saved by him and for him. And so let us look to him anew each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are our deliverer. God, that you have decreed deliverance, that you have accomplished it by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you have completed it, that you have finished it in us by the sending of your Holy Spirit. We pray that by the same Spirit that you would continue to sanctify us, renew us each and every day, that you would remind us of the deliverance and the hope that we have 
in Jesus Christ. That as we bark on this new year 2022, that we might uh, remember afresh who you are, who Christ is, and that we might be conformed ever into your image. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.